And let's pray as we come together to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that your Word would come alive in us and come alive to us. We do thank you for your Word that it is powerful, that it is the ultimate truth, that you uphold and sustain us by it. We pray that you'd speak to it in our thoughts and our words this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're looking at the prophet Amos this morning as part of this first part of this series on the minor prophets, the so-called minor prophets. So if you would turn with me please to page 770 of your Bibles to Amos chapter 9 and we'll read the last chapter of Amos and I'll focus especially on the final verses from verse 11 onwards but we'll review the whole book those who were choosing one of the minor prophets to preach on who were wise chose prophets whose books are very short and Amos's book is not very short although it's not very long but I will try and cover the whole book in a short time and then we'll, look, we'll focus on chapter 9 so Amos chapter 9 beginning of the first verse page 770 in your Bibles I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people and those who are left of them I will kill with the sword not one of them shall flee away not one of them shall escape if they dig into Sheol from there my hand will take them if they climb up to heaven from there I will bring them down if they hide themselves on the top of Carmel from there I will search them out and take them and if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them and if they go into captivity before their enemies there I will command the sword and it shall kill them and I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good the Lord God of hosts he who touches the earth and it melts and all who dwell in it mourn and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vaults upon the earth who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth the Lord is his name are you not like the Cushites to me O people of Israel declares the Lord did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kir behold the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob declares the Lord for behold I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve but no pebble shall fall to the earth all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us in that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches 
and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the ploughman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord and scripture cannot be broken. When you were a child, perhaps if you are a child now, if your parents promised you a big present for your birthday or for Christmas I don't know what people get today in my day it would be a bike or a playstation how much you would look forward to it you might want to see if someone had smuggled it into your home and hidden it somewhere but because your parents have promised it to you you know that you will receive that big present on the day and so you will be good because you don't want to upset your parents and risk them changing their mind about the present but also because you love them and you want to respond to their love with love God has promised Christians as his covenant people called to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ many gifts and blessings in this life but there is a big gift, a great gift that God has promised to us at the last day what is the big gift that we should be looking forward to? Amos was the earliest of all the prophets. So he was active around 760 BC. It's a long time ago. About 170 years after the kingdom of Israel in the north under King Jeroboam I had broken away from the kingdom of Judah in the south. Amos was a shepherd and a herdsman from Judah in the south from a little place called Tekoa about 16 kilometres south of Jerusalem but he had also clearly travelled as he said he, in one part of his book he said he was a dresser of sycamore figs well there aren't any sycamore figs around Tekoa so he must have travelled somewhere else for that and he says in chapter 7 that he is not a prophet or the son of a prophet. He's not part of the religious establishment. He's just an ordinary man, a farmer with some life experience. But God called him to speak his word to the people of Israel, the northern kingdom. So he was a southerner ministering entirely in the north at Bethel where the people of Israel had their temple. Now you've been forced, for better or for worse, to hear my voice for a little while. You know, it's an English voice. Imagine me having to do open-air preaching in Dunfermline or Arbrose in Scotland, where my voice would sound very different to the local people. Amos is a southerner preaching 
and ministering in the north, in Israel, a long way from home. And when Israel had split from Judah, they had rejected the temple at Jerusalem in Judah and had set up at Bethel a kind of imitation temple, an imitation of the Jerusalem temple and an imitation of its worship. But they had the king taking part, which was against all the rules of worship in Jerusalem. They also rejected the part of God's word that his salvation would come through the line of King David of Jerusalem. Under their king, when Amos is preaching and prophesying, another Jeroboam, Jeroboam II, they were enjoying peace and prosperity. But the basis of their worship and of their existence was a lie. They were looking after themselves rather than looking to God. They were like the child expecting a big birthday present but behaving badly. Judah also had wandered away from God. And both of the nations are all the more guilty as they know their responsibility to God as the people with whom he has made a covenant as his people. Both of the nations are guilty of hypocrisy in seeking to worship God without obeying him. But the book of Amos shows that God is on their case. So at the start of the book, in chapter 1 verse 2, God roars like a lion to condemn all of the surrounding nations, all of which are his and responsible to him. And then he condemns Judah and Israel for breaking his covenant with them, for ignoring his law. In Israel's case for injustice and oppression, immorality and profaning God's temple and his name, by setting up a kind of fake temple and fake worship. Prophecy, whenever you go through this series or whenever you read any of the prophets in the Old Testament, prophecy is always intended as corrective so that God's judgment is averted and people are restored to faithful living. So we've read in this chapter 9 some terrible examples of God's judgment. But prophecy is always (coughs) intended to correct people before they are judged and condemned. So in chapter 5 verse 4 of Amos, God asks his people to seek him and live, not with more sacrifices at their fake or corrupt temples, but with reformed living in line with God's standards of right conduct and justice. In chapter 5 verse 24, God says this, Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. If those words are familiar to you, of course they were used by Martin Luther King in his I Have a Dream speech in August 1963. It's 60 years ago this month. Chapter 6 describes the destruction that will follow if the people do not repent. And in fact, in 723 BC, which is not too long after this prophecy was issued, the Assyrians conquered and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, which ceased to exist. I don't know if you've ever tried to build a wall. That's a common thing. Out of bricks, I mean, not um, any other kind of wall. You know, a wall has to be vertical, absolutely vertical, if it's going to stand up for any length of time. How do you know that a wall is vertical? Well, the builder today would use a plumb line, a weight on a piece of string, and of course a weight always falls exactly in a vertical line. In chapter 7 of Amos, God says that he is measuring his people Israel like measuring a wall with a plumb line and they do not measure up. 
In all of this, Amos, of course, has become a pain in the neck to Amaziah, who's the priest at Bethel, and the king of Israel, Jeroboam II. So in chapter 7, they tell Amos to get lost, to go back to Judah and never come back to Israel. But Amos continues to prophesy, warning of the judgment of God. And then the last part of the book, from chapter 8 onwards, there is an, a sense of impending doom for Israel. The total darkness in chapter 8 verse 9 shows God's utter condemnation of mankind's sin, fulfilled at Jesus' crucifixion when God made the sun go down at noon. And in chapter 9, which we read, God says to Israel in verse 7, Are you not like the Cushites to me? Well, who were the Cushites? The Cushites were Nubians. Nubia is an area south of Egypt. And Egypt was the end of the known world. He's saying you're not part of the known world. You're like someone who isn't part of the known world. You're like someone who's not human. Someone who doesn't exist. Today we might say you're like a Martian to me. Someone from Mars. You don't really exist. You're a non-person. Israel in its rebellion has become unknown to God. God is Lord of all the nations, he says. So just as he had rescued Israel from Egypt, he has also brought up the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kir. God rules all the nations, not just Israel and Judah. And we're not saying here, and Amos is not saying, that God is withdrawing Israel's adoption or abandoning his covenant with them. In fact, he says in verse 8 of chapter 9 that we read, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. And in judging his people, as with a sieve, he says in verse 9, no pebble shall fall to the earth. I don't know if you ever use a sieve. A sieve can be used in two ways. You can either sieve out or sieve in. You can try and collect the things that don't fall through the sieve, or you can collect the things that do fall through. But God is sieving out, if we can call it that way. He's trying to keep the things in the sieve that he wants. He says no pebbles will fall to the earth. He will keep the things in the sieve he wants. He won't utterly destroy the house of Jacob. But he will judge them. And there's no escape from the judgment of God, as we read. He will pursue wrongdoers wherever they try to hide, even if on the top of the highest mountain, or in the depths of the sea, or even if they dig into Sheol, the land of the dead, God will find them and judge them. The people of Israel had assumed in verse 10 of chapter 9 that no disaster could come upon them because of their special relationship with God. But they are not exempt from his law and his justice. They regarded themselves as the end of God's salvation. But in fact they were only ever the means of God's mission to the world. God chose Judah and Israel as the means of reaching his chosen people from all the nations of the world, all of whom belong to him. Amos's vision shows that God's rule is not just over Judah and Israel, but over all nations, that he is the creator and judge of all people. And in this final section, I want to look at in more detail, from verses 11 to 15 in chapter 9. We go beyond God's judgment to God's ultimate goal, the salvation and the restoration of all his people in a renewed creation. I'd like to look at it in three sections. 
three P's. I know you like alliteration. First, the people of God, verses 11 to 12 of chapter 9. Second, the plowman and the reaper in verse 13. And the promise of God in verses 14 and 15. First, the people of God in verses 11 and 12. I wonder if you have ever restored or repaired something. Maybe a item of clothing, a garment in which you have sewn up a tear or patched a tear. Or maybe you've restored a piece of furniture or an ornament. Mankind has fallen and the world is in a mess. But God is not going to leave things as they are. In verse 11 he says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David. God says he will repair and rebuild it to be in pristine condition as in the days of old. Most of the book of Amos, as you've gathered, is about judgment and condemnation of Israel and Judah and the neighbouring nations. But condemnation is not God's final word. To those he has chosen, his promise is not destruction, but restoration. In contrast to Judah and Israel, represented by their temples that God says he will smash to the ground in verse 1 of chapter 9, he says he will raise up again the fallen and ruined booth of David. The booth of King David represents those in the line of blessing of salvation through great David's greater son the saviour of all God's people the messianic king of whom David was only a foreshadow the Lord Jesus Christ so this is not about the physical restoration of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah in any case if it were that as the restoration of David's booth as it's described the people of Israel the northern kingdom wouldn't be part of it because they had rejected David and all the kings descended from David. Amos' vision is much wider. David's booth, the restored people of God, will include in verse 12 the possession of the remnant of Edom. Edom is the tribe descended from Esau, the southern enemy of Israel and Judah. And it also includes in the same verse all the nations called by God's name. Through the line of David, God has covenanted to save and restore his people from many nations. This is not about the restoration of the Old Testament nation of Israel. It's about God's restoration of his chosen people from many nations. All those called to faith in Christ. The restoration of the booth of David is the creation of the church. Amos' prophecy was made long ago, very long ago, but it's about us today. When is this rebuilding of the booth of, of, uh, booth of David to take place? Does the phrase on that day, in that day, in verse 11, what does it mean? Does it refer to the day of the Lord, the last day, as often it does? Amos is first here as facing the opposition of the enemy nations around them, may have wished that the day of the Lord would come soon as God's rescue of them. But Amos has said in view of their sins and their rebellion, that's not a very good idea. There's an old saying, be careful what you wish for. Amos has said in chapter 5, 
that the day of the Lord for those who have rebelled against God is a day of darkness. Amos said it would be like escaping from a lion to run into a bear. A day of covenant curse instead of covenant blessing. But you say, you might say to me, come on Richard, you still haven't answered the question. Do the words in that day, in verse 11, mean the last day? The end of the world? To answer this, we need to do a little detective work. I know you all like watching detectives. Maybe not all of you, most of you. Detectives on television. Can they find out the truth? So to help us answer this, we need to look uh, at Luke's account of the meeting of the Council of Jerusalem in 48 AD, quite a long way further forward. So if you would, please would you turn with me to page 924 to Acts chapter 15. Page 924, Acts 15, and I'll read a few verses from verse 12 onwards. Page 924, Acts 15. Acts 15, beginning at verse 12. And all the assembly, that's the council of Jerusalem, all the Christian church gathered together in Jerusalem, all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter as we know him, Simon Peter, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, etc., etc. James, the leader of the whole church of the Lord Jesus Christ, cites this prophecy. This is the same prophecy we're looking at. He cites this prophecy of Amos as God's authorization of the admission of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter and then Paul and Barnabas reported that God, by the work of the Holy Spirit through the Gospel of Christ, had brought many Gentiles to faith in Christ. Will the church, at that point made up of Jewish Christians only, accept these, Jewish, accept these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, as equal members in the church? And in seeking God's will, James declares Amos' prophecy that we're looking at in Amos 9 to be God's word to them at the Council of Jerusalem, fulfilled in recognising the work of the Holy Spirit in sending the Gospel of the Lord Jesus to the ends of the world in accordance with Jesus' commands in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Amos' prophecy of God's restoration of David's booth is actually about God's creation of the church by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on many people from many nations. James said, just to repeat, Simeon, Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this the prophets agree. By quoting this prophecy of Amos, James confirms 
that it is fulfilled in God's creation and sustaining of the church and its inclusion of the Gentiles called to faith in Christ. And that includes us, by the way. God has included all Christians amongst his people and the Holy Spirit has poured out on us. We benefit from God's covenant blessings. So Amos' prophecy is about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's creation of the church also fulfills his promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 to bless all the families of the earth through him and in Genesis 13 verse 16 that his offspring would be as many as the grains of sand or as the stars in space in Genesis chapter 15. Amos' prophecy of the restoration of the booth of David is fulfilled in the creation and the extension of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ by his call to faith of all his people whether Jewish or Gentile from whatever nation of the earth. When James the moderator of the church if we can call him that applies Amos' prophecy to the admission of the Gentiles to the church that is definitive. It is God's confirmation that his restoration of David's booth in Amos 9 is God's work of establishing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that doesn't happen at the end time. That happens from the start of the Messianic age inaugurated by Jesus' death and resurrection. So when Amos says in verse 11 in that day it is applied not to the end time but to the Messianic age the time between Jesus' first and second coming the time in which we live. In James' version of the prophecy in Acts when he says after this I will return the word he uses for I will return is never used for Jesus' second coming. So these verses in Amos, to go back to Amos, chapter 9 verses 11 and 12, cannot be about the last day. It's about God building the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But although these verses are not about Christ's second coming, in describing the establishment of his church, they form the basis of God's actions at the second coming. The establishment of the church is the stepping stone to the last day, the necessary prerequisite for Christ's return and our resurrection to be with God forever. And in verse 13, Amos moves on to prophecies that describe the new heaven and earth that is promised at the last day to the church of Christ as the restored booth of David. Jesus' second coming takes God's creation of the church onwards to the restoration of the church in the new heaven and earth. God's promise of life in the new heaven and earth is for the church, for all those whom God has called to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the second point. They get shorter, don't worry. Verse 13, the plowman and the reaper. If someone asked you in the street, you're a Christian, um, what, will, what do you think heaven will be like? Describe heaven to me. I wonder what you would say. A popular image is that it's a place of inertia. It's like the ultimate beach holiday, only without the beach. You float around in clouds and have nothing to do. A biblical understanding is that at death, the body and the soul are separated 
the soul of the Christian goes to be with God immediately but the body is dead and is buried or otherwise disposed of. This happened to Jesus but on the third day at his resurrection his body and soul were reunited. Jesus' body couldn't be found in spite of all the myths that have been uh, propagated since then. His body couldn't be found because it had been reunited with his soul. And we're promised the same thing at our resurrection because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Our resurrection is part of his. He has begun what we will enjoy in continuity. And our bodies will be like his. Although described as, physic as, although described as spiritual bodies, our bodies will be physical. Jesus, when he was risen, was able to eat a fish and be touched. And we also will be able to do things physically. And we will have to do things and we will have things to do as part of our worship of God. But our resurrection won't take place until the last day, the day of Jesus' second coming, when he will return to restore his people and renew the whole cosmos as the new heaven and earth, as one entity. Heaven and earth are not separate in renewal. And that is the heaven to which we look forward as set out in this last part of Amos' vision. It's a physical place. Amos' vision is not a metaphor. It's not an image of something. It is a picture of something real. The vision of the ploughman and the reaper is about the new heaven and earth, the land God will give to his people. And the fertility and productivity of the restored land will be astonishing. We used to have one growing season. I don't know if you have ever bought a pack of seeds for something. And on it it will say, sow the seeds in March or April and the plant will grow and will flower or produce fruit in July or August. We have one growing season. In some countries in the world there are two growing seasons. But the abundant productivity of the restored land in the new heaven and earth will be so amazing that the growing season will be all the time with no pause for winter, no need for the land to lie fallow. As soon as the reaper, you know what a reaper is, don't you? You've all seen Poldark, when Poldark takes his shirt off and sighs the wheat that's ingrained in everyone's memory. He's reaping. That's what a reaper does. As soon as the reaper has harvested one crop, the ploughman comes right behind, planting the next. In fact, he's so hard on the heels of the reaper that it's as if he would overtake him. Of course, it's an exaggeration. You might say the journey here to Grace Church Hammersmith was so quick that it was as if I arrived before I had left home. You probably don't have journeys like that. As soon as someone sows the grape seed, the grape plants grow so quickly that the treader of grapes comes to pick the grapes and gather them for the wine press and tread them down to make wine almost before the seed has been sown. It's that productive. The mountains and all the hills shall drip or flow with sweet wine. The land will be so productive that it will be as if the mountains themselves drip wine instead of water. You might think of Jesus at Cana turning water into wine. So this is not just restoring the land as we know it. It's not even like the Garden of Eden, but it's even better. With productivity that is at last totally free from the curse that God pronounced in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, 
as part of the curse of Adam. Creation free at last from disease and corruption. All those things that came from man's sin. It's a land with greater abundance than anything we can imagine. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 verse 21 the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is what the new heaven and earth will be like. The heaven that God promises to his new people. All those who are called to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ from many nations. Eternal life in a real physical land pulsating with explosive fruitfulness in the renewed creation restored at the last day when Christ comes to reign with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit residing with his chosen people forever. And third, the promise of God, verses 14 and 15. From the vision of the fruitfulness of the land, Amos sets out the wider promises of God in the restoration of his people who have been set free from sin altogether and forever. What God gives in the new heaven and earth will never be lost or taken away and what he gives is over and above anything that his people have lost in this life all restored to them in abundance over and above what they have lost their cities and homes and land restored and given by God in overflowing prosperity and they will enjoy these things in obedience to God with thanksgiving and in recognition of their Davidic Messiah the Lord Jesus Christ the covenant deliverer of Isaiah 59, quoted in Romans 11, who will banish ungodliness and take away their sins. The one who by his life, death and resurrection has fulfilled God's covenant so that God can restore his people to be with him forever in his fullest blessing. And this blessing of God is his people's final state to be enjoyed forever. He says they shall never again be uprooted. This is eternal life lived as the full satisfaction of God's covenant blessing not subject to decay or change or corruption not conditional upon anything but resting entirely upon the grace of God in the last words in verse 15 says the Lord your God God uses his personal name whenever we see the Lord in capital letters it's God's personal name Yahweh showing that this ultimate blessing from God is through the word of God. These are God's words. And in his almighty power he will accomplish what he has promised and purposed. Well, what does this mean to us? Of course it goes beyond being like a child looking forward to a Christmas present. As Christians we have been called into a relationship with God and we love him and want to please him and we know that the only way of being saved from sin and death is by faith in Jesus who took on our human flesh dying in our place that we might be brought to God as his covenant people and the eternal life that he gives us is not just an end in itself now but it leads to something it leads us to share in God's promise of total restoration in the new heaven and earth and a perfection that is far beyond what there is or has been. The final kingdom of God, where there is no sin, or decay, or death, or tears, where all of God's people are blessed and joyful, productive and loved, at one with God, in union 
with the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory into eternity. And that should change our lives. Whatever we face, we are always with God, always united to the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that in his amazing love, the great gift that God promises us is life with him forever, both now and in his glorious renewed creation. Let's pray together. Thank <laughs> you.